Turn in the Catechism, which is found in the back of the hymnal, to Lord's Day 21. There are three questions there. We're only going to look at one. I'm sorry. Not Lord's Day 21. Lord's Day 20. I'm sorry, 21. Sorry, sorry. It's page 880. We've been going through the Ottoberg Catechism, and we are in the section of the Catechism, which is explaining uh, the various phrases of the Apostles' Creed, which we just recited, uh, which Christians around the world uh, recite. And um, in question 54, it deals with the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Catholic Church, but in the next ecumenical creed, the Nicene Creed, it adds one attribute to the church, and that is unity, or one, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I've added that for the sermon this morning, despite that it is not uh, there in the Apostles' Creed. So, uh, what do you believe concerning the holy Catholic church? I believe... good. And then turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 14 and read to the end of chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Hear what follows uh, for what it is, the Word of God. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, <coughs> Excuse me, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those, to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It was Martin Luther who said, let the church be the church. And it's the great need of our day, actually, to let the church be the church. There is too little emphasis on a biblical understanding of the church of Jesus Christ, and there is too little attention paid to it. Even in seminaries where you would think that men being prepared for ministry in the word and sacraments would be taught a solid biblical understanding of the church, um, it is not taught in many or even most seminaries. I went through four and a half years of seminary education and never once um, had a class on the church. So it is a crying need. 
And uh, the result of that omission is not just great confusion, but so often failure uh, for the church to be the church. And the remedy begins with what the church is not, and then understand what the Bible says the church is. And what it's not is very clear, all right? The church is not a building, all right? We talk about uh, architectural construction as, oh, that's a church, or that's a beautiful church, and certainly the architecture is admirable, but the church is, is not a building. Look at verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. He's not talking about a building there. He's talking about people, all right? He's talking about Christians, all right? You, plural, are the building, uh, the church. If every church building in the world was demolished, the church would still remain because the church is not a building. Secondly, the church is uh, not a social club. Uh, it's not some place to go and engage in social activity uh, like, uh, you know, Knights of Columbus or Kiwanis or Knights of Pythias if you're Jewish or some of those other social organizations. And the church also, thirdly, is is uh, uh, is not uh, a secluded cloister. Many people, uh, for a variety of reasons, which we won't go into today, look at the church as kind of a holy huddle. We go to the church and we gather in the four walls of the church and we just have our holy huddle, separate from the world, uninfluenced by the world, unimpacted by the world, and we just hang on until Jesus comes back. Well, that's not a picture of the church either, all right? simply because such an understanding increasingly uh, becomes irrelevant to the world in which we live. Jesus said we are to be in the world, even though we are not to be of the world. If we segregate and isolate ourselves from the world, we're failing to live according to the dictates of Scripture. All right? Um, in fact, the church is not a human organization at all, but it's divine, and it is spiritual um, in nature. The catechism rightly says that uh, through his spirit and word out of the entire human race from the beginning of the world to its end, uh, the Son of God, Christ, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united and uh, united in true faith. All right? Uh, the church is the body of Christ on earth. As we have seen in, when we went through the book of Ephesians, uh, verse by verse, the church is God's new humanity for a new creation, all right? And, uh, as we'll see momentarily, the church is not a place to go. The church is a people who go in obedience to the Great Commission to make Jesus Christ known far and wide. More on that momentarily, all right? So, what the church is not. But what is the church? Well, there are four attributes uh, to the church, all right? Not all of them are mentioned in the apostles. They are in the Nicene. And I want to look at each one of them today so that at least we have some understanding of what the Bible teaches about the church. And those four attributes are that the church is to be one, the church is to be holy, the church is to be Catholic, small c, all right? Catholic, don't get bent out of shape. You really need a, a, a dictionary. Look it up. It simply means universal, all right? Um, and it is apostolic, all right? So we're going to look at them. Now, what I want you to understand, all right, is that those four attributes 
have, each one of them has two aspects to each one. They are, it is uh, uh, descriptive and it is prescriptive, all right? That is, at one and the same time, it's a description of what the church is, but it's also a duty of what the church is to be, all right? So it's descriptive and prescriptive. It's describing what the church is, and it is a duty for what the church is to be. So look at each one of those with me, if you will. The church is one, all right? Notice that in the Apostles' Creed, we believe, uh, we believe uh, in uh, a holy Catholic church, right? Or one holy Catholic and apostolic. Not the, all right? So it's, a, it's not a definite article. We don't believe there's one, uh, one, uh, one church like Messiah's Reformed Fellowship is the church and there's no other church, right? No. We, and we do not believe in the church. Some formulations, not to make too much out of uh, something, but words mean things. Some formulations of the Apostles' Creed say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We don't believe in the church, all right? We believe in Jesus Christ, all right, who is the head of the church, all right? Our faith is in Jesus Christ, all right? Our faith is not in the church, all right? However important an institution it may be, all right? <clears throat> in verses 14 through 22 that we read, all the references to the church here, if you would take time to go over it, and we're not going to do it again now, but all the references are singular, all right? Singular. There's one church, all right? The church of Jesus Christ is one, one in common faith. And you should know this, all right, because one of the most common objections I encounter when I talk to unbelievers about Jesus or about the gospel or about the faith is they say, well, you Christians can't even agree uh, amongst each other. You got Pentecostals, you got Methodists, you got Episcopalians, you got Presbyterian, you got Reformed. You can't even agree amongst yourselves. Well, that's just not true. It's just not true. Every true Christian church believes in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, which is why they're referred to as ecumenical creeds. For a church to be a true church, you have to believe in those ecumenical creeds. It's what we have in common, all right? Our differences largely have to do with government, how the church is to be governed, and have to do with uh, sacraments, and that would take us too far afield, all right? But we are one in common faith. All right? <clears throat> Look at Ephesians chapter 4, right? Verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right? And yet when you get down to verse 13, until we all attain to unity. Well, which is it? Is it one or attain to one? It's both. All right? You see a description. The church is one. And yet, the church also has a duty to be one. More on that momentarily, all right? Unity is always unity in the truth, all right? <clears throat> Ecumenical relations are not ecumeniacal, all right? We're not maniacs when it comes to relationships with other Christian churches. Just because they have church in the name doesn't mean that they we ought to uh, align ourselves with them. There are many churches even here in New York City, all right, that are not true churches. And that's not because they believe things that I disagree with, although that may be the case. It's because they don't believe in the Apostles' Creed. 
They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the Bible as the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. All right? So for that reason, we can't have align with one another. All right? Um, so, but the church is to be one as well. All right? The church is not just described as one. It has a duty to be one. R.B. Kuyper, in his book, The Glorious Body of Christ, which I would commend to everybody, <clears throat> He says this, when the Prince of Peace declared that he had come not to send peace on the earth but a sword, he had in mind the fact that the one and only way in which true peace can come is by the destruction of false peace. Almost without exception, the denominations of our land and day are enjoying or pretending to enjoy a false peace. Truth and falsehood are walking hand in hand. That cannot be. So while we are to be ecumenical, we can't be ecumeniacal. All right. We have to say unity is a unity based in truth. All right. Now, let me give a pitch here. And one of the reasons why I'm focusing on these attributes of the church that are not in the Apostles' Creed or the Heidelberg Catechism. I think one of the great scandals of our day is that churches who actually believe the Apostles' Creed, who actually believe the gospel, who actually believe in the supernatural that the Bible teaches, who actually believe in Jesus Christ, who's come, crucified, risen, reigning, and returning, that those churches can't get along with one another, particularly Reformed churches. All right? Now I'm going to give you an example from Grand Rapids, where I lived for 14 years, but it's uh, illustrative. All right? When we lived in Grand Rapids, there was the Christian Reformed Church. There was the American Reformed Church. There was the Protestant Reformed Church. There was the Netherlands Reformed Church. There was the Heritage Netherlands Reformed Church. And the list goes on ad nauseum, right? You say, well, they're just different churches. But they all confess the three forms of unity. But they don't talk to each other. That's scandalous. Let me tell you why it's scandalous. Look at John chapter 17. Look at John chapter 17. If you're a good student of the Bible, you'll know what's going on in John chapter 17. <clears throat> John chapter 17, Jesus is uh, praying his high priestly prayer. And uh, God the Son is praying to God the Father. And, of course, I didn't outline. Up, oh, verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, all right? And later on, uh, Jesus says the reason that they should be one, in verse uh, 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a missionary rationale for ecumenical relations. There is a, an evangelistic rationale for ecumenical relations. Now, the way I like to put it is like this. When they come to chop your head off, they're not going to ask if you're a Methodist or if you're Reformed or a Presbyterian or a Pentecostal. They're just going to say, are you a Christian? Off with your head. Now, why do I mention that? Because in my estimation, 
The time is long past when we can stand in separate corners of the room and point our fingers at Christian brothers and sisters and say, oh, you know, you believe this. We don't want anything to do with you. We live in a day and age where we need each other. We need to be one with each other, right? We need to be praying for each other. We need to be encouraging each other. We need to be supporting each other. And in New York City, I hope you realize it's needed more than ever, more than Grand Rapids, more than California. We live in the midst of a hostile environment where Christianity is rapidly becoming a persecuted minority. More on that next time. We need each other. And what I'm pleading for is, you want to argue with a Baptist or a Pentecostal about our differences? Good. But then let us go get a slice of pizza and a soda right afterwards. And let us exercise our brother relations, right? All families fight, right? Every married couple fights. They don't fight. They're either lying or they're dead, right? All families have squabbles. Christian family too, right? It's all right. But we need to love one another because Jesus says that the world may know that you have sent me. Unity, ecumenicity is a very important thing in the life of the church. So the church is one. It is one, right? We saw that in verse 3 of chapter 4. Maintain the unity. And yet the church also has a duty to be one. We saw that in uh, verse, um, yeah, what was that, 13. So, all right? So, secondly, the church is holy, all right? Look at verses 21 and 22 in uh, chapter 2. In him, the whole structure being uh, joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, let's dispense with the idea that every person is perfect or sinless, right? Uh, not even regenerate, born-again Christians are perfect or sinless, all right? Um, and we, uh, what it means to be holy is simply means to be separated from the world. You're a called-out people, ecclesia, called out. You're called to be separate from the world, all right? We're called to be different from the world. Our elder often reminds us, right, that as Messiah's Reformed Fellowship, we are a Reformed Church in New York City seeking to make a difference by being different, all right? We're called to be different. We're called to be different, not like wackos or weirdos. We're called to be different by being holy, by walking according to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we are holy. We have been called out. It's why the Bible refers to Christians at the beginning of so many New Testament epistles as saints, all right? You ought not to understand that the way that some Christian churches understand it, as if there's certain people that have earned or been more righteous than everybody else, and instead of just attaining to 100% righteousness, they have 150%, and they can give some of that overdose to other people, right? That's what some people mean by saints. No, that's not what it means. To be a saint means to be a holy one. You've been called out, all right? So it's a description of the church, but it's also a duty, all right? We are to be holy. God called his people in the Old Testament. He says it through Paul in the New Testament, right? Be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy, all right? We must, as the author of Hebrews says, pursue holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. Let's be perfectly clear. No holiness, no heaven. 
You can't live like hell and expect to go to heaven. It's just not the teaching of the Bible. More on that in our 1130 service, all right? Uh, God is holy, and he calls his people to be holy in their words, in their actions, and in their thoughts. So, are you holy? Are you pursuing holiness without which no one shall see the Lord? Are you? Are you? Catholic, third. Tempest Fugits here, all right? Catholic, as I mentioned earlier, simply means universal. Universal. That's why the Catechism says, uh, the Son of God through His Spirit and Word out of the entire human race, the entire human race, not just New Yorkers, right? Not just people in the Middle East, not just people in any one particular country, but universal, out of the entire human race. It's not limited to any one people, any one nation, any one denomination, any time, place, or age, all right? What we read in verse 14 through 22 is very important, is that God had broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, right? There's not to be any racism um, in the church, any nationalism, as if some one nation has prominence or favorability over another nation. No, all right? Uh, the... Uh, the church is to be universal uh, from sea to sea unto the ends of the earth, all right? And we are to take the gospel to make disciples of all nations, uh, teaching them to obey everything God has commanded. This is the duty of a Catholic church, is if God calls people out of the entire human race, he can only do that ordinarily, uh, when the gospel goes to people in the entire human race. So there's a missionary element, as I mentioned here, right? Uh, To take the gospel to make disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. That commission has been entrusted to this church. It's been entrusted to every church that calls itself by the name of Jesus Christ. We're called to make disciples of all nations. And can I tell you, this is the only way we will ever experience world peace. The United Nations, I like to refer to it as the Tower of Babel on the East River, all right? The United Nations will never, ever, ever achieve world peace because there can be no peace unless you make peace with the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, first. Because we are alienated from God. And in our sins, we hate God. And because we hate God, we hate our neighbors. And that's the cause of all the conflict, all the war in the world. All right? Is sin when it comes right down to the bottom line. And unless you deal with your own personal sin and are reconciled to God, and He does something to reconcile you to himself and makes peace between you and him, there will never be peace between you and anybody else. R.B. Kuyper, again, in his book, The Glorious Body of Christ, says this. It's important to take note of. The most important positive implication of the church's Catholicity, Catholic, remember, right, universal, is its solemn duty to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations and tribes on the face of the globe and to receive all who believe, whatever race and color, into the church by baptism. 
In the Christian church, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all, uh, Galatians chapter 3. He goes on to say, only a few years ago, now this was written like 60 years ago, maybe 70 years ago, right? He's talk- And it, nothing's changed. I could say only a few years ago, we heard the same thing 70 years after this was written. Only a few years ago, there was such enthusiastic talk about one world, one world order, the new world order, right? Many were so gullible as to believe that the conclusion of the Second World War and the organization of the United States nations would usher it in. Today, there's general disillusionment, no wonder. The indispensable prerequisite of one world is a universal church. Only then where there will, be, will there be one world when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Only then. And history for over 2,000 years has demonstrated the veracity of that statement. Because peoples who were initially hostile toward, towards one another, like Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians, right? Nations, populations, races have been united in Jesus Christ. And the hostility between them has been set aside, left behind, and become brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that's ever going to happen. Lastly, it's apostolic. Look at verse 20 in chapter 2. Verse 20 in chapter 2. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. All right? Notice that it's built on uh, the foundation of the apostles, plural. It's not built on one apostle, Peter. Right? It's built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, and prophets, right? And Jesus Christ, the true uh, cornerstone, all right? What's this referring to in, uh, in Ephesians as well as in our creeds? It's apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles and prophets, or the word of God, all right? The church is to be built on the word of God, all right? <clears throat> Found in scripture and in scripture alone. So that is apostolic, it's a description, but it's also to be a duty. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We have a duty to be apostolic, Right? It's necessary to know your Bible. It's necessary to know apostolic teaching. It's necessary to know, can I say the dreaded D word? Doctrine. Right? Doctrine somehow in an evangelical church in 21st century North America has gotten a bad reputation. Oh, doctrine bad. Right? Doctrine divides. Doctrine doesn't divide. False doctrine divides. True doctrine unites, which is why the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, and the Belgian Confession are called the three forms of unity. They unite us in a common confession of what the Bible teaches. 
Now, it's been said many times from this pulpit, but as I'm constantly reminded by my good friend, that repetition is the teacher's friend. So I'm going to repeat what I've said a million times before, right? You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. And as a persecuted minority in a hostile environment in New York City in the 21st century, it's more important than ever that you know what you believe and why you believe it. That you're able to articulate it. If somebody came up to you and said, what's the gospel, what would you say to them? If somebody came up and said, hey, I see you reading the Bible, what's in that Bible? What would you say? Westminster Shorter Catechism says the, the scripture is what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Isn't that a nice, succinct definition of the contents of the Bible? I mean, 66 books, all those pages, in two succinct phrases. What we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. It's a window so that we have access to God through his word, by his spirit, but it's also a mirror in which we see ourselves, and God tells us how we are to live, all right? So you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. So the church is one, and it's to be one. The church is holy, and it's to be holy. Christians are to be holy. The church is Catholic, and it's to be Catholic. And the church is apostolic, and it's to be apostolic, all right? If you will, this is the barometer of a healthy church. Is Messiah's Reformed Fellowship a healthy church? Are we one holy Catholic and apostolic? Let me encourage you. Yes. But as Paul says to the church throughout the New Testament, do so more and more. <laughs> we can be better, right? So let's be one. Let's be holy. Let's be Catholic. Let's be apostolic. And let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise uh, for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet. We thank you for your church, the church of Jesus Christ, purchased with his own precious blood. We ask that you would help us to esteem her and that you would help us uh, to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. And amen.